This is the Martin Luther Sermon Podcast, and this is Martin Luther's Sermon on Luke chapter 14, verses 16 to 24, the text of the parable of the banquet, preached on the second Sunday after Holy Trinity Sunday. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. For more information on the Luther Sermon Podcast or more Luther sermons, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.com. Org. This sermon is from Luther's House Postal, reading from a translation published by J.A. Schulze, publisher in Columbus, Ohio, in 1884, a text and translation that's in the public domain. First, the Gospel lesson, Luke 14, verses 16 to 24. A certain man made a great supper, and bade many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all, with one consent, began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I've bought a piece of ground, and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. I pray thee have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and showed his lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in hither the poor, and the maimed, and the halt, and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is room. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you, that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper." Luther's Sermon. Contrary to the order of the ancient church, the papists have set this gospel lesson for the first Sunday after Trinity for the reason that during this week the festival of Corpus Christi was celebrated, as it is still celebrated among them. For they made the supper of which the text speaks refer to the Holy Sacrament, desiring thus to establish the communion in one kind, which is one of their chief abuses and an anti-Christian perversion of the sacrament, concerning which we are at variance with them. Now, because the youth are growing up and know nothing about such festivals or pomp, and we old persons are also forgetful, it were well to remind our people in order that, when our young people go into their churches and see such things, that they may not take offense at them, but be able to say that it is not right that they thus triflingly carry the holy sacrament about, and in connection with it dispense lying indulgences. They have not the intention of thereby honoring the sacrament, for they would carry the whole sacrament or both kinds, but that they, to the shame and disgrace of the sacrament, may be honored thereby. They seek thus to maintain a distinction and exhibit a priestly estate as especially exalted before God above that of the common Christian, because the clergy alone use the whole sacrament in both kinds, receiving both the body and blood of Christ, whilst the other Christians, as inferior people, must be satisfied with but one part of the sacrament. This distinction the the papists endeavored by this festival to establish among the people, and thus to honor their own estate above all others. But by so doing they brought shame and disgrace upon the holy sacrament and upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who had not instituted his holy sacrament for an especial estate aside from that of the common Christians, as he had not suffered and died for a particular estate either, but had done so for the comfort of his Christian church, which is not divided, but is one body, he himself being the head, whilst the members, as to their life and nature, are all alike, though they have different offices. This great and injurious abuse we should not overlook, but point out, 
especially because the papists hold to their wicked ways with great impenitence and persistency. For how does the sacrament come to be used for the purpose of making a distinction among Christians? When Christ certainly instituted it for the comfort of conscience and the strengthening of faith, and furthermore designed that it should be a covenant by which Christians are most intimately united, so that all may be as one bread, not merely because they have one God, one word, one baptism, one sacrament, one hope, and all grace and gifts of Christ in common without distinction, but because they are also of one body externally in which one member is to serve, help, counsel, and sympathize with the other, etc. This use of the sacrament the papists have destroyed altogether by claiming it as whole only for themselves, and thus forming a party that pretends to be better than common Christians. And in order that that common people may not despise the sacrament in one kind, but learn to honor it, this festival was observed annually for eight days, and the one kind, that is, the wafer, was carried through the town with great pomp and music and cymbals and stringed instruments, causing the people to look on in astonishment and to conclude that, though the estate of the priesthood was more glorious before God, yet they also had something to show. For this purpose also, they have been using this gospel lesson, though it does not agree with the sacrament in one kind, as though the man in our text had made a dry supper, giving something to eat but nothing to drink, although they themselves sing Vinite comedete panum meum et biblite vinum meum, that is, come and eat my bread and drink my wine, and yet give but one kind and keep the cup for themselves. However, this is the way God is always treated, Whatever he institutes or orders must be perverted and abused by the devil and his adherents. This has been the case with the sacrament also, which is still on this festival shamefully abused by the papists. As we have said, they do not keep this festival in honor of the sacraments, else they would carry about both kinds, that is, the whole sacrament, but they do it in honor of themselves. They extol the sacrament not for our benefit, but for the purpose of teaching us the difference between priests and lay members. In other things in which God himself has made a difference, it is well for us to observe it. Let a wife be a wife and a husband a husband. Let a civil government be distinguished from its subjects, and so in other temporal estates. But it is not right to make distinctions to the claim a better baptism and a better gospel for the Pope, bishops, St. Paul, or St. Peter than other Christians have, because God has made no such distinctions, but has abolished them. Therefore, it is wrong for them to have a better sacrament than other Christians because our Savior, Jesus Christ, has not instituted the sacrament to make distinctions among Christians, but to put them on an equality. In like manner, he has given baptism and the gospel to to be enjoyed by all alike. This much I had intended to say briefly about this matter for the sake of our youth and for ourselves in order that everyone may guard against the abomination which the papacy has introduced, causing divisions in Christendom which God has united. We are condemned and persecuted because we refuse to, make, to, to be made mice and rats and are not satisfied to eat without drinking or to take one part of the sacrament only. We have dropped this festival in our church altogether because our opponents have perverted it for idolatrous purposes in direct opposition to the order and institution of Christ, thereby bringing dishonor upon the Holy Sacrament and manifest injury upon Christendom. We are determined to maintain the unity of Christians who are all favored alike, all distinctions having been removed. May this suffice for the young and the illiterate. We will now proceed to consider our gospel lesson. 
After the miracle by which the Savior in the house of, the, of a Pharisee healed a man afflicted with the dropsy, Christ teaches the people. But the evangelist says that they watched him. Hence he begins to lecture them, one and all, about their pride and vanity, and about their choosing out the chief rooms until at last he also approaches the host, telling him how to invite his guests, that he shall not bid the rich, who in this life may thank him for it and bid him again, but the poor, who may bid him, bid him again in the life to come. One of them, who claims to be more learned than Christ himself, hereupon exclaimed, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of heaven. As though he would say in his great wisdom, Your preaching is altogether in vain. If it depends on preaching, I would be able to do it too, and perhaps better than you. I consider it the very best of sermons when I say, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of heaven. The Savior rejoins, I will tell thee and those like thee what kind of blessed people you are. There was a man who made a great supper and bade many, but they made excuse and would not come. This is the blow intended for him, as though the Savior would tell him, You have a great deal to say about a man that shall eat bread in heaven. You are in great earnest indeed, and an excellent man, one of those who has been bidden, but would not come. Whoever will pay attention to these words will find them sharp and severe. Those to whom he is speaking are the worst kind of rogues. They sit at the table not for the purpose of learning something, but to watch and to catch him. Then he tells the parable. A certain man made a great supper. This man is our God himself, a great and rich Lord, who has prepared a feast in accordance with his glorious majesty and honor. He has prepared a supper which is called a great and glorious supper, not merely on account of the host who is God himself and whose supper would be glorious though it consisted only of pea soup or dry bark, but also on account of the food itself, which is beyond measure, great and costly, being the Holy Gospel, yea, our Lord Jesus Christ himself. He himself who has rendered satisfaction for our sins by his death and redeemed us from the misery of eternal death, of the wrath of God, of sin, of eternal condemnation, is the food presented to us in the Gospel. This preaching of Christ is the great and glorious supper by which he feeds his guests, sanctifies them through the holy baptism, comforts and strengthens them through the sacrament of his body and blood, so that nothing is wanting and an abundance is supplied to satisfy all. This is very properly called a great and glorious supper on account of the food, which is so costly and richly prepared that no tongue can describe it and no heart sufficiently conceive it. For it is an eternal food and an eternal drink, and those who eat and drink of it shall never hunger or thirst again, but be satisfied and joyous forever. And this is not for one man only, but for all in the whole world. And if our earth were ten times as large as it is, there should be no lack but enough for all. It is infinite food and eternal drink. For the gospel says, Whoever believes in this Lord Jesus Christ, who for our sake was born of the Virgin Mary and for our sins, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, who died, descended into hell, arose again from the dead, and sitteth on the right hand of God, etc., whoever believes this truly eats and drinks of the supper. For to believe in Christ means to eat and drink so that people are thus made satisfied and rendered fleshy, robust, and strong, and made joyous forever. This supper is truly called great, because it is so precious and offered to so many, and the food does not become less, though many partake of it. It is a great and strengthening food, which lasts forever and gives eternal life. 
In this way, the Savior gives the hypocrites around the table to understand that the supper of which he is speaking is far different from the supper which they offer unto him, and that they are rogues and knaves who may babble and talk much, but who despise God, his mercy, and eternal life and salvation, and give everything else the preference. Our text continues, And bade many. Those many who were bidden are the Jews and the whole people of Israel, who, since the time of Abraham, were especially bidden by the prophets. The seed from which that blessing should come was promised to the patriarch Abraham. Therefore this supper was first proclaimed to him as the father of that people. Afterward the prophets extended their proclamation, informing the people that God had made all things ready and diligently repeated his invitation. Therefore St. Paul in his epistles always mentions the Jews first and then the Greeks. And when the time come that people should come to the supper, that is, the time when Christ was born and should now suffer and arise again from the dead, the servants, John the Baptist and the apostles, went out, saying to those that were bidden to the people of Israel, Dear people, thus far you have been bidden, but now it is time. Come, the supper is ready. The Lord Jesus Christ, your Messiah, has been born. He has died and arisen again. Therefore do not tarry long. Come to the table of the Lord. Eat and be merry. That is, accept your promised treasure with joy who has, according to the promise, delivered you from the curse and from the condemnation and has saved you forever. This message was especially delivered to the leaders of the people who held positions in government of the church and of the state. But how did they receive it? They all, with one consent, began to make excuse. This is a lesson for the guests who sat with Christ at the table, especially for the vain babbler who tried to teach Christ and talked much about bread in the kingdom of God, saying, Blessed is the man that shall eat bread in the kingdom of heaven. Yea, says Christ, if you wish to know how blessed you are, I will tell you. The bread has already been served up. The supper has been prepared. John the Baptist has come, and I and my apostles bid you to sit down to supper. But you do not only stay away and let the host with his great supper wait for you, but you also try to excuse yourself and appear innocent. This is doubly sinful. In the first place, you despise the gospel, and in the second place, you even pretend to have done right and to be holy, pious, and wise. This is truly a most grievous sin. It is bad enough not to believe the word of God, but it is a great deal worse to go a step farther and to despise it, and at the same time even claim to be righteous. This is done also by those who have abused and blasphemed the sacrament and have given it to us erring Christians only in one form and yet excuse themselves and claim to have done right or even condemn and maltreat us and persecute and kill those who insist on having the whole sacrament. But let them kindle the fire. Who knows, but they, they themselves will be consumed by it. The Jews also did thus and excused themselves, saying, We cannot adopt this doctrine for it is opposed to the priesthood and to the law, which has been given to us by God himself through Moses, and it, and it causes the ruin of our kingdom which God has confirmed. We must see that we maintain our cause. Thus the first excuses himself on account of his piece of ground, another on account of his oxen, and both think that they have done right. The third does not even excuse himself, but merely declines, saying, I cannot come. The same excuses are made by us against the gospel, and we are not any better than they have been. First of all, they excused themselves on account of the law of Moses, which they endeavored to uphold. And because the apostles preached against the law and maintained that neither their law nor temple nor priesthood is needful, because the greater priest, Jesus Christ, has arisen from the tribe of Judah, 
they would not suffer such preaching, but adhered to their law, as is the case even today. Thus it has come to pass that they are still waiting, and will have to wait till the end of time for the coming of their Messiah, of whom they hope that he will restore the old priesthood and kingdom and everything as it was at the time of David, and that he shall bless all with plenty. Christ here points out three classes. The first says, I must needs go and see my piece of ground. These are the first and best among the Jews, the whole priesthood and the chief rulers. They say, We must labor, farm the land, and gather the harvest. That is, we must govern the people, as Christ also calls preachers of the gospel, husbandmen who sow the seed of the gospel, and attend to the office of our priesthood as God has commanded. And because the doctrine of the apostles is opposed to this, it is wrong, and we are certainly excused for not adopting it. Others also who hold offices in the civil government excuse themselves by their oxen, for the rulers are called oxen or bulls. For example, Psalm 22, Many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They also have an honest excuse. We have a kingdom and government instituted and created by God. This we must keep and maintain. The third class say, The gospel is a, is a doctrine forbidding us to be covetousness and to strive for plenty, and requires us to give up all, if need be, even life and existence, money and goods for Christ's sake. Therefore, we cannot and will not come, for we must make efforts to keep our own, which God has given us. For to take a wife does not mean to, pr to purpose or to do anything dishonorable, but to enter into a holy estate, to stay at home, and to seek to make a living as everyone is bound to do. But the head of a household sins by endeavoring to become rich and to succeed well in his vocation, whether this be with or without the favor of God. The Jews merely regarded the promises of Moses that they should receive temporal blessings and be prospered as regards their cattle, lands, wife, children, and all they had if they would fear God and keep his commandments. Therefore they were concerned only to fill kitchen and cellar and to become rich, taking it for granted that then they were pious and that therefore God had blessed them, as is written in Psalm 114. Just in the same way our papists excuse themselves and say, the doctrine is true, but we must still adhere to the church and her established administration. And again, we must preserve obedience to the civil government in order to prevent discord and revolution. Thus they hesitate, like the Jews, to accept the gospel, lest they should thereby lose their church or civil authority, whilst, in fact, the gospel alone establishes the true church and prevents all undue power and revolution. Covetousness also exerts its influence. Because they see nothing but poverty and persecution accompanying the gospel, they cannot by any means persuade themselves to accept it, but say, We have taken wives and therefore cannot come. Yet they want to be Christians, claim to have done right, desire to be looked upon as pious bishops, pious princes, and pious citizens. But how will they fare in the end? Just like the Jews. They too held to their law, priesthood, kingdoms, possessions, until at last they came to naught, losing one after another and are now scattered over foreign countries and sit uneasy in their houses. This is their reward for which they have been laboring. They did not want the supper, but preferred their kingdom, priesthood, and houses to the gospel. Therefore they lost all three and received the sentence, None of those that were bidden shall taste of my supper. Consequently they have lost both their temporal possessions here on earth and the great supper in heaven. And this will be the reward of our adversaries also. 
Thus did our Lord lecture the wise doctor and his companions when at meat and pointed out to them their relation to God, as indicated by the words, Then the master of the house, being angry, said to the servants, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, etc. This is as much as to say, Because you consider it of great importance to look at your lands and your oxen and to take wives, than to come to my supper, that is, because you prefer your priesthood, your kingdom, and your riches to my gospel, therefore I will give you up to lose all and will seek other guests. Therefore he says to his servants, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. This was done among the Jews. Because great lords, princes, and priests, and the most prominent among the people refused to accept the gospel for reasons above stated, our Lord God chose humble fishermen, the poor, needy, and despised little flock, as St. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 1, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, etc. According to this passage, God rejected all that was nice, holy, rich, and mighty because they refused to accept his gospel and chose foolish and simple persons and the very lowest, such as Peter, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, etc., poor fishermen and beggars whom nobody considered worthy to be servants of the priests and princes of the people. These were left like dregs, and Isaiah says, like sediment of the good and precious wine, the best of the people, priests, princes, and rich and mighty, having been poured away like a cask of good wine and leaving nothing but the dregs or sediment, as the Lord here calls the poor, the maimed, the halt, and the blind, these are here favored and honored, are pleasing in the sight of God, and are his dear guests, whilst other high and great people would not come. When the Pharisee says, Blessed are they that eat bread in the kingdom of heaven, the Savior gives us his assent, saying, Yes, they are blessed. But you and those like you care more for pieces of ground and oxen. Therefore I assure you that a supper is prepared, of which only the poor shall partake, as the text says, Pauperus Evangelizantur, because you mighty, holy, and wise people do not care for it. Therefore they have found that both priests and princes have been cast away like the best of wine because they so firmly cling to their oxen, grounds, and wives. Hence the poor beggars have to come to the gospel or the glorious supper in their stead. This serves the Jews right, and especially the one who pretends to be very wise and talks about eating bread in heaven, but who clings to his priesthood and kingdom in preference to Christ and his gospel. It is the great mistake of his heart to suppose himself sure of heaven without Christ and to expect God to tell him and all Jews come Jews and especially ye priests saints princes and rich citizens the supper is prepared for you yes he tells them it is true you have been bidden but you do not heed the invitation you excuse yourself and claim besides to have taken the right course Therefore I will cast you away and choose rather the most humble of the, of the people, even if I should not get any except the despised, miserable, maimed, and halt. The same shall be experienced by our adversaries, who are not saved by the fact that they are great and holy bishops and mighty princes and lords, and who have not the least idea that God will cast them away, and save only the little flock in the despised rat-hole of Wittenberg that have embraced the gospel.' 
Yes, my dear friends, if God did not spare his own people, who had such great and glorious promises, but cast away the chief among them and saved the dregs only, neither will he spare thee. The fact that you are considered great, holy, and mighty will not enable you to eat bread in heaven, but the poor shall have the gospel preached unto them. Our Lord God is infinitely greater, mightier, wiser, and holier than all kings and all devils put together. Therefore he does not care for your holiness and power. And if you will arise against him and heinously despise his word, he will also arise against you and put to shame all your wisdom, power, and holiness. Thus far the text is directed only against the Jews. For the Savior speaks about the maimed and the halt on the streets and in the lanes of the city, and the Jewish nation is called a city because they have been a well-regulated and organized people, having their laws, worship, temple, priests, kings, all instituted and arranged by God himself through Moses. Now he sends his servants to the highways and commands them to gather in all he finds, even the beggars along the hedges and everywhere. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highway and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. These are the heathen, who did not live in cities, nor did they have any worship of God, but were idolatrous, and did not know either themselves nor God. Their home is a public place upon the highways and in the fields where the devil roams at large. Go thither, he says, and compel them to come in. The world is always opposed to the gospel and cannot suffer its doctrine, and yet the Lord wants his house filled with guests, for he has prepared his feast and must have guests to eat, drink, and be joyful, even if he must make them out of stones. Here we observe also that the Lord Jesus preserves the world so long for our sakes, through, though he would have sufficient reason, on account of our sins, to destroy it any moment. But he does not do this because he desires more guests, and because of the elect who also belong to this supper. And because his servants bring us the gospel, it is evident that we, having been baptized and led to believe, are also to partake of this supper. For we are the people about the hedges, the blind, poor, and lost Gentiles. But how are we compelled to come in? God, God certainly does not wish any forced service. He compels us simply by preaching to all men. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Here he points out both heaven and hell, death and life, wrath and grace, and makes us conscious of our sin and the dreadful estate in which we are, and causes us to feel alarmed because we learn that man is subject to the devil and condemned wherever he lives and moves from youth up. This is a part of that compelling, by which we are made to feel the wrath of God, but are induced also to ask for grace and help. When, by the preaching of the word, our hearts are alarmed and broken, he desires this also should be preached. Beloved, do not despair on account of your sins and the terrible curse resting upon you, but go and be baptized and hear the gospel. Then you will learn that Jesus Christ has died for you and rendered satisfaction for your sins. If you believe this, you are safe against the wrath of God and eternal death and are permitted to partake of the glorious supper to eat, live, and grow robust and strong. To frighten on account of sin, we may truly call compelling, not as the Pope compels with his anathema. He does not rightly frighten the conscience, as he does not teach the true nature of sin, but carries on his foolery, claiming that whoever does not observe his ordinances and institutions of men shall be under the curse. 
The gospel, however, begins by revealing sin and the wrath of God and showing that all of us, without a single exception, are sinful and wicked. This our Lord commands to be preached when he says to the apostles, Go and preach repentance. Repentance, however, cannot be preached except by declaring that God's wrath is upon all men because all men are full of unbelief, contempt of God, and other sins. This wrath is intended to terrify them and to make the conscience timid and fearful so that they compel themselves, saying, O Lord, what shall I do to be delivered from this misery? When a person is thus terrified and feels his misery, it's time to tell him, Sit down at the table of the rich master of the house and eat, for many tables are still vacant and an abundance of food is prepared. That is, be baptized and believe in Jesus Christ that he has redeemed you. There is no other remedy by which you can be delivered. Thus the wrath of God ceases, and the heavens shower down pure grace, mercy, forgiveness of sins, and eternal life. The words compel them to come in are beyond measure sweet and consoling to the poor and unfortunate multitude of those who are compelled and who, like ourselves, were lost and condemned heathen. For by these words God displays and exhibits his infinite love and grace, And it must indeed be an unspeakable love of God that in these words he expresses his great anxiety for our salvation and commands not only to admonish and kindly to call poor sinners to this supper, but also to compel them and to urge them to come and not to cease doing this until they are brought into the supper. From this it is very evident that he will not have them cast away or be lost if they do not themselves, by willful contempt and stubborn impenitence, resist such compelling. God is, as Tolerius says, infinitely more desirous to help and to give than we can be to ask and to receive. And he asks nothing of us but that we open our hearts and accept his grace. But this compelling is very necessary, both by the preaching of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. For without it we would continue in our hardened state without repentance under the wrath of God in our sinful nature and in the kingdom of the devil. But again, when we are made to feel the terror of God's wrath, we are too timid and fearful to accept, to believe that he is ready to bestow upon us such infinite grace and mercy, always fearing that we will be excluded and be cast away on account of our sins and great unworthiness. Therefore, he himself must command and order that this urging and compelling be continued in every, poss- in every way possible, both by pointing to the wrath of God for the wicked and to his grace for believers. Wrath and repentance urge men to run and cry for grace, and this is the road which leads to the supper. Thus Jews and Gentiles are gathered and united into one church, all being called poor and miserable people and maimed and halt. After being terrified, they accept the gospel heartily and with joy. Those who will not submit to this, be they ever so wise and prudent, have their sentence in the words, They shall not taste of my supper. That is, the wrath of God shall remain upon them, and they shall be condemned on account of their unbelief. God does not respect their wealth, wisdom, or holiness, though they feel safe and apprehend no danger. Yet they shall find that the sentence of the Lord, non gustabunt, they shall not taste of my supper, will be carried out. Those of us, however, who are troubled on account of our sins, and do not refuse but accept the grace of God offered by Christ in the gospel, Receive grace for wrath, righteousness for sin, and eternal life for eternal death. 
Such a dreadful judgment as we see is passed today on Turks and Jews, and no savor of the gospel is left in them. Nay, it is disgusting and horrible to them, and they will neither hear nor suffer it. The same is the case with our popes and bishops. They do not smell this food, much less will they eat of it and be satisfied. Whilst we, having come in possession of the doctrine by the special favor of God, become strong and vigorous and joyful, and are merry in the house of God and at his supper. God grant that we may remain faithful unto our end. Amen. In this parable, the Lord admonishes us highly to value the gospel and not to join the company of those who imagine that they are shrewd, wise, powerful, and holy. Their judgment is here fixed. They shall be cast out and never taste of the supper, as they were cast out in the Jewish nation, only the dregs being left. Thus it will be with us if we choose our land, ox, wives, or spiritual, as they now speak, or civil honors and temporal possessions in preference of the gospel. They shall not taste my supper. Few are the words, but they are plain and explicit, as though the Lord would say, My supper is worth something. Yea, it's better than your oxen, lands, houses, or wives. You may now despise it and prefer as more precious your lands, oxen, and houses, but the hour shall come when you shall have to leave oxen, land, and houses. But when you would gladly taste of my supper, then you shall be told, My friend, you come at an improper time. I cannot now wait upon guests. Go, therefore, to your land, oxen, and houses. Perhaps they can furnish you a better supper, seeing that you have so securely and proudly refused me. It is true. I had made full preparation for you, but you have despised it. If you have made better preparations, then eat and be merry. But as for my supper, you shall not taste of it. It will be a severe, dreadful, and insufferable judgment when God's supper shall be called eternal life, and their land, oxen, and houses, everlasting torment. And when this judgment, that they shall not taste of his supper, shall be final, from whence no appeal shall be allowed forever. No repentance or regret shall then do any good, nor any return be possible. Therefore these words, by which the master of the house expresses his wrath, are pointed and dreadful. It is the manner of mighty lords and people of high position not to use many words when they are angry, but every word which they do speak is weighty, and their intentions are more grave than they are able to express in words. How much more are the words of the Almighty expressive of a fearful wrath which shall never be quenched? And still we act as though these hard and dreadful words were spoken by a child or a fool, at which we might laugh and mock, or as though God were jesting or making sport. We do not hear nor understand the words of our text which plainly say, He was angry, having spoken in great wrath, and that he is no child and no fool, but God and Lord over all, before whom is it is meet, as the scriptures say, that even the mountains tremble and quake in their foundations, and that the seas and waters flee before him. But there is no creature so hardened and perverse as man, who is not afraid in the least, but despises and mocks at these things. We, however, have given warning, and thus is our glory. For in the last day all the world will have to bear witness that they have heard and seen it through our testimony. Nor do we care that they accuse us of heresy. This we will bear and gladly thank them for thus deriding our testimony, for by so doing they confess that they have surely heard, read, and seen it. More I do not ask of them. By acknowledging that they have heard it, 
they testify that we have not kept silent. And if we have not kept silent, but have diligently and faithfully taught and preached, so that even our enemies say that we have been doing too much of it, then let him judge us who has made it our duty to do so. And the God who urges them to condemn us may defend them. The name of God will prevail, and it will be made manifest in due time which is the true God, the true Christ, and the true Church. For the world there can be no better government than that of the devil or the papists, so the world would have it. The demands of the devil are obeyed with great readiness. The will of God, however, both as regards church and state, is not respected, but everywhere opposed, so much so that if I could make a division between the world and the church, I would cheerfully help to subject the world to the Pope and the devil. However, Christ our Lord will do this, and many other things, and keep his suffer far enough from the world and the devil. Amen. This has been Martin Luther's sermon on the text, Luke chapter 14, verses 16 to 24, preached on the second Sunday after the Feast of the Holy Trinity. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church. For more Luther sermons, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.org.